The year 1952 was a memorable one in American pop culture. American Bandstand had just debuted, taking the country by storm. Everyone was an instant fan. After all, who wouldn't love that dreamy Dick Clark? But Bandstand's upbeat music and saw-coppish dancers belied a country in crisis. President Truman was wrapping up an unsuccessful term. I shall not be a candidate for re-election. Even worse, poliomyelitis, or polio as it's better known, was back, and it was more rampant than ever. In fact, 1952 marked the biggest outbreak the United States had ever seen. Given that we're still in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic, it seems easy to imagine what life was like during 1952's polio epidemic. And there are a few similarities. Mandated quarantines, overwhelmed hospitals, and certainly fear. Poliomyelitis struck with such impact and fury that it shook the entire nation. It spread its crippling tentacles from ocean to ocean and border to border. But the polio epidemic was different. First of all, the disease targeted mostly children, infants and toddlers. Unquestionably contagious, polio spread quickly, yet nobody knew exactly how. In the summer when the virus was most prevalent, pools and playgrounds closed suddenly. Theaters went dark. City workers hosed down streets, washing away who knows what. Coffins piled up outside of buildings. Anxiety and uneasiness became as ubiquitous as the virus itself. Polio came on like the common cold, a runny nose, maybe a sore throat. Later on, a child spiked a fever. Then came the aches and pains, sudden jolts to the legs, back, neck, and shoulders. Muscles spasmed, postures curled into twisted positions. Then the fever would break, a sigh of relief for worried parents. But the reprieve was fleeting. As if bored with the bloodstream, polio charged into the nervous system. Within days, children would be paralyzed. Polio, or the crippler, as it was called, mercilessly took away muscle control, but it left feeling intact. A child could feel his legs. He just couldn't move them. Infected children, scared and in pain, were taken to hospitals where their parents were banned from visiting. If parents didn't send children voluntarily, police would arrive at their home and remove a child from his mother's arms. Families tried to escape infected areas, but untouched towns set up barriers to keep them out. This was life with polio. In 1952, the virus took roughly 3,300 lives and paralyzed 57,000 children. Except for the atomic bomb, Polio was the greatest fear facing America.
At Cross Border Solutions, genius isn't narrowly defined by high IQs or Ivy League degrees. Around here, you have to work a little harder to earn the coveted status. Sorry, Harvard. For us, the term genius is about game-changing ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution. Welcome to Genius Beats Fear, cross-border solutions thought-provoking podcast where we discuss real-life disruptors who push the envelope so far, they change the way we live. Do these innovators face obstacles, challenges, critics? Of course. But then, genius always beats fear. While America was reeling in the grips of polio, behind the scenes, one man was already fighting it. Dr. Jonas Salk, a virologist, was running his own tests at his lab at the University of Pittsburgh. Salk wasn't your ordinary scientist. He didn't grow up fascinated by test tubes or looking under microscopes. In fact, a good student, though not a superior one, Salk initially wanted to be a lawyer. His mother, rather controlling when it came to her firstborn son, vetoed the idea, as soft-spoken Salk couldn't seem to win an argument even with her. Salk was a virtuous scientist. He wanted to use his knowledge and mastery to make the world a better place, another ingrained gift from his mother. While some scientists rely solely on formulas and calculations, Salk marries science with instinct, thoughtfulness, even compassion. Hardly prerequisites in the world of scientific academia, those qualities served Salk surprisingly well. Where others saw boundaries and limitations, Salk discovered opportunity. He proved his deftness at detecting loopholes when he tried to join Dr. Thomas Francis Jr. at the University of Michigan a few years before. Dr. Francis was researching a vaccine for influenza, an epidemic that threatened America's soldiers in World War II. Dangerous could have worked that. Yeah. But that's a darn sight more dangerous. Chemists are all smiles, while the rest of the country is all sneezers, and more and more victims go down the flu. Nurses would be up to their eyes in work, only they've got it too. The necessity of reducing or liquidating its commitments in several parts of the world. Men working to win for the ways of freedom. Salk applied for a research fellowship to work under Francis. He waited six months for Dr. Francis's lukewarm response. Salk took that as invitation enough. He moved his family to Ann Arbor with the promise of a nominal salary and a deferment from the draft. Salk's work with Dr. Francis would lay an invaluable foundation when it came to fighting polio. Together, the pair created a vaccine for influenza that helped inoculate soldiers during the war. Salk found the work fascinating to the point of obsession. Like Salk, the influenza virus was complicated and layered. Science had dictated that viral vaccines required live viruses, as proven in the smallpox, yellow fever, and rabies vaccines. But Salk and Francis had used inactivated or killed viruses for the flu vaccine with great results. Salk knew killed virus vaccines had more potential, 
and in his lab at the University of Pittsburgh, he would discover just how much. In 1921, 39-year-old Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a busy, hard-working candidate for the Democratic vice presidency. War work done with, the year 1920 finds Franklin D. Roosevelt at the threshold of a new career. He began to take a prominent place in councils of his party. His keen-minded and progressive thoughts were eagerly sought... No wonder he needed a vacation. That summer, he sought respite at a summer home on Campobello Island in southeastern Canada. But the trip didn't turn out exactly as planned. It was there. Roosevelt contracted polio. In 1921, polio struck, paralyzing him from the waist down. Three years of nightmare followed him. As we all know, Roosevelt didn't let the disease, or the paralysis he suffered as a result of it, stand in the way of his political ambitions. He would go on to become one of the most revered presidents in U.S. history. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He would also launch the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, which would later become known as the March of Dimes. Later on, money raised by Roosevelt's foundation would fund Jonas Salk's research, leading ultimately to a miraculous vaccine that would eradicate the disease altogether. With funding from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, Salk was able to expand his University of Pittsburgh lab and hire a small team of researchers. The first task was to identify how many types of the polio virus existed. Then scientists could determine how to best fight it. Salk was one of four chosen scientists throughout the U.S. that made up a committee working on typing the polio virus. And though his discoveries were substantial, he was never quite accepted by the esteemed group. They criticized and questioned his findings constantly, a practice that only worsened with time. Salk, however, was determined and motivated simply by the work. As one colleague put it, Salk saw beyond the microscope. Examining magnified cells was part of a bigger picture saving the lives of children. Salk never lost sight of that. Polio was a mystery that had to be solved, and he chipped away at it, proving and disproving one hypothesis at a time. Scientists working on the polio virus were following protocols dictated by past successes. Live viruses that had eradicated smallpox and yellow fever. Salk, however, experimented with inactivated polio virus, believing it safer than a live virus, which he thought could potentially trigger the disease it was created to defeat. He was right. Salk and his team spent tireless hours in that University of Pittsburgh lab. He collected and grew live viruses, then killed them to create vaccines he could test. At first, Salk used monkeys to try his vaccines, he had to expand his lab just to house them. At one point, his lab was home to more than 400. Despite Salk's attempts to dissuade them, other scientists still pursued live virus vaccines. One of Salk's weaknesses as a scientist was also a strength. He didn't pay much attention to protocol. 
Progress reports were almost always late. He spoke to the press often and sometimes without consulting fellow scientists first. And when he was ready to test his polio vaccine on humans, he knew other scientists would object to the point of derailing his progress. His solution? He went underground. Saul conducted a secret trial, which, of course, was unheard of in the world of science. Compelled by his mission to eradicate polio at the soonest possible second, and put an end to the fear and suffering that came with it. Salk let nothing stand in his way. The D.T. Watson Home for Crippled Children was home to many children who already had polio, and that's where Salk's secret trial would begin. At the time, conducting trials on patients with either physical or emotional illness was standard. Salk's trials would spill into the greater Pittsburgh area, where he tested more than 4,000 children. In 1953, Salk tested his vaccine on his wife, sons, and himself. The first time that we had injections of the polio vaccine was in our kitchen. Um, my father brought material home, boiled the needles in the syringe. However, he knew everything he needed to know after he measured the anti-polio antibodies in the first vaccinated child. His vaccine was effective and safe. A success. A dread disease is dramatically unfolded at the University of Michigan. Here, scientists usher in a new medical aid. Jonas Salk, discoverer of the first successful vaccine against infantile paralysis, gives the first official reports to a waiting world. The great wealth of events that has accumulated in the experiences of so many is well represented in the report made this morning. And the entire world heralded the discovery which assured an end to one of mankind's most dread diseases. It works! It works! Reporters yelled at a news conference at the University of Michigan a year later in 1955, when the results of Salk's testing were officially announced. People cried with delirious joy. Newspapers splashed Salk across headlines as a hero or miracle worker. We can all be proud of the soft vaccine brought about by American scientists and American giving. We can all share in the hope that this victory... By the fall of 1955, the U.S. saw a 75% reduction in polio cases in those who were inoculated. In New York, not a single case was reported among vaccinated children. Cases in Denmark and Canada reported reductions in those who had received the vaccine, too. Salk received a Congressional Gold Medal. Six years after the introduction of Salk's vaccine, polio was almost eradicated in the U.S. Salk had earned the respect and admiration of reporters, celebrities, government officials, even everyday American families. But scientists? Not so much. They hated his wordy, scientific manuscripts, the way he milked the limelight, endeared the public, and worked off his own instincts as much as he did proven scientific facts. And though it was conclusively working, they still disputed his killed virus vaccine and eventually pushed to replace it with competing scientist Albert Sabin's live virus vaccine. In 1999, four years after Salk's death, a federal advisory panel recommended that the U.S. return to Salk's killed virus vaccine. And that's what we still use today. 
Though Saul created what's possibly the single most important medical contribution in history, he was denied entry into the National Academy of Sciences. Peers claimed Salk had made only a basic scientific discovery. He never knew what it was like to feel welcomed by the coveted scientific community. And though nominated several times, Salk never won the Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work. But then, the most satisfying recognition can come from where you'd least expect it. One day, an 11-year-old boy was introduced to Salk. This is Dr. Jonas Salk. He created the vaccine that cured polio. What's polio? The boy asked. Salk beamed. Thanks to him, the boy didn't have a clue. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, a podcast from Cross Border Solutions. We're here with Charlotte DeCroze Jacobs, the author of Jonas Salk, A Life. Congratulations on your book, Charlotte. What an incredible read. It was so compelling. The descriptions are so vivid and beautifully written. What made you write it? And why did you choose Salk as a subject? Well, first, thank you for your compliments about the book. Well, when I was a child, um, the kind of carefree atmosphere of our summer was dampened by this threat of something called poliomyelitis. And the newspapers and magazines and newsreels would display pictures of children struggling on crutches or entombed in iron lungs. And no one could predict what town or which child would be what we call the cripplers, next victim. Polio was highly contagious, and once a child was infected, the only treatment was supportive. So fear pervaded the country in the summers. When on April 12, 1955, this kind of waiting world learned that Salk's vaccine could prevent polio, celebration erupted worldwide, and Jonas Salk became one of the greatest heroes of my generation. Over the years, I wondered what happened to Salk, and having reached acclaim at 840, what did he do for an encore? Although he was a major character in several historical books on polio, there was no formal biography to enlighten me. And so I set out to write one. So when you read about Jonas Salk in articles, you know, online and other books, he's portrayed in many different ways. You know, I've seen interviews where, you know, people have called him the prophet, a dreamer, aloof. What can you tell us about who Jonas Salk was as a person? Well, very good question. As I began my biography of Salk, of course, the biggest challenge was to portray him as accurately as possible. As, as one biographer put it, I needed to get beyond the legend without destroying the man. That's a great way to put it. So just starting from the beginning, uh, he was born um, in 1914 in East Harlem, and his mother told him he was born with a call, which is that kind of amniotic membrane covering his face, and that that meant he was destined for greatness. Well, that was pretty unlikely for this shy, submissive, first-generation Jewish immigrant, but he believed her, and he prayed daily that one day he would perform some noble deed. And of course, he did. And he had kind of all the makings of this wonderful 20th century icon, a, a white knight in a white coat, 
born in a tenement, humble in manner. And in the wake of his achievement, he just received a staggering number of awards, a Congressional Gold Medal, a Presidential Citation. He was ranked with Gandhi and Churchill for years on lists of most revered people. Yet he was ostracized by the scientific community, the one group whose adulation he really craved. So why, I wondered. Was Jonas Salk really an American saint, or was he a self-absorbed man who contrived to assure himself a place in medical history? Well, when historians asked Jonas Salk what he wanted his future biographer to write about him, he replied the truth, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, but after April 12th, he forged of 1955 when the vaccine success was announced, he he kind of formed this what I call a protective shield, and that made it really difficult to comprehend the paradoxes and the questions surrounding his life. Absolutely. So one of the things I found so interesting about your descriptions of Jonas Salk was, here's this man. He did something so, so extraordinary. And yet he was described as a mediocre student. I think you said a B-minus student in your book. How do those two things go together? How does a mediocre student come to accomplish this brilliant achievement? I mean, this life-saving success. Well, I have to say, I really was surprised when I... uh, I wrote to NYU and got his grades. I actually could could get his grades. And when I saw that he had some C's and and B's, I was shocked. Um, (laughs) So let me scroll back then a little bit. So he had this overbearing mother, and she told him he was brilliant. She always knew he was brilliant. And Salk later in his life said, "Eh, when I was a kid, I knew I was competent. (laughs) But he was smart enough to compete for a spot at Townsend Harris High School in New York. And it was one of the top magnet schools, but this one was for the humanities, so that they only had one token science course in the whole high school. Then he got into City College of New York, and he became intrigued by the sciences, and he decided he wanted to be a doctor. But City College of New York at that time had this high percentage of pre-med students from two of the top science magnet schools, and they pushed the academic competition to levels Jonas had never experienced at Townsend. So he was shocked that, you know, his grades were so bad, but he was, and those were in the sciences, but he was determined. He persevered, and he subsequently did get a string of A's. But he knew his mediocre grades early on uh, and the kind of tacit Jewish quotas at the time would probably bar him from most medical schools. But he did have something on his application that differentiated him. And so I think you then begin to see him pulling away from the, from the average at this point. He wrote in his application he didn't plan to be a practitioner, which was the usual career for most medical graduates at that time. He planned to, quote, bring science into medicine, he said. And in his medical school interview, Saul kind of remembered that people kind of didn't really think he was being serious. And one professor warned him. He said, well, you know, you'll never get rich doing research. And Jonas said, there is more to life than money. Well, following that comment, he got his first and only letter of acceptance to medical school. And then while he was at NYU, he then began to excel. And he sought out this very famous virologist, Thomas Francis, and started doing research in his laboratory. And uh, 
So I think he may not have been a genius by the kind of IQ test of a genius, um, but he was brilliant in the way he approached his work that made him successful. Um, and if I was going to use an idiom, if you don't mind, I would say he kind of, quote, fought outside the box. Um, he had what was kind of at the time considered an unconventional approach to science. He was also extremely hardworking. I mean, extremely hardworking. So why did the scientists have such an issue with Jonas Salk? Was it his inexperience? I know they were senior to him. Or was it they really didn't trust the killed virus vaccine? Or was it just their own egos that they wanted to be the first to discover the vaccine? Well, I don't think it's I don't think at that point it was their egos. And and I think later we're going to come into why he was ostracized. But I think at that point, you were right. He, you know, he's this little junior investigator. He's from a medical school. Every, all of them were trained at the Rockefeller in New York or at Harvard. And he's working in Pittsburgh and which now is a, a wonderful medical school. But back then it, it wasn't very well known. He's favoring using this killed virus, which none of them believed would be beneficial. And he was a little unconventional when he would write, write his work up. He would kind of use metaphors and, and, and different kind of language. So he was not a traditional scientist in the way that they did things, lockstep. They were concerned. I mean, the, the higher-ups now, Basil O'Connor and, and Weaver at that point, they were concerned that there was so much pushback from the scientific community that they may not believe the results of the trial. And so they felt that it had to be done by someone who had high regard in the scientific community, and that was Thomas Francis. And that would have been okay with Salk, I think, except that Thomas Francis only agreed to do it if they agreed that he would share none of the results none of the early data, nothing, with anyone in the March of Dimes, nor with, with Basil O'Connor, nor with Jonas Salk until the day that the results were to be presented. So Jonas Salk was kind of sidelined for the whole year of this trial of his vaccine. Wow. So I'll tell you what happened that year. So while he's on the sidelines... He's in the sidelines in terms of conducting the trial, but he had come to personify the fight against polio for the public, and the press loved him because he was he was really a nice, nice person, and he would talk to them, and there were pictures of this kind of humble physician with his engaging smile on the front pages of newspapers, a cover of Time magazine, you know, when is your vaccine ready, Dr. Salk? And few scientists had ever reached out to the public as Salk did. They, they kind of stayed in their ivory towers, and he answered their questions and calmed their concerns. So he was kind of growing in this hero status, but he had been sidelined from the trial. So the trial started on April 26, 1954, and it was remarkable for a number of things. First off, it was the biggest clinical trial in the history of American medicine, and it was monumental in size. A million children were in it. It was financed and conducted by volunteers through the March of Dimes, not through the government, not through the pharmaceutical companies, through the public. This was the public's trial. 
And I think the American public felt that they were waging war against polio. And I think that in itself is, is quite a remarkable story. So in selected uh, elementary schools across the country, over a million first, second, and third graders were assigned by a random draw to receive vaccine or placebo. And it was blinded, so people didn't know which they got. And it wasn't carried out by some professional research organization, but with an army of volunteers, 20,000 physicians and public health officials, 40,000 nurses, 14,000 school principals, 50,000 teachers, and 220,000 housewives. And not only did they uh, you know, set everybody up to be treated and give them their vaccinations, they collected all the data and sent it to Thomas Francis. So it really was quite remarkable. Um, so on April 12, 1955, Thomas Francis uh, announced the results to great fanfare and, and uh, Salk uh, talked right after him. And the vaccine had been 80 to 90% effective against paralytic polio, and it harmed not one single child. Well, the country went wild. The world went wild. I mean, people were honking their horns. Sirens were ringing. Church bells were tolling. People were running into the street, hugging each other. People were writing all over their store windows, thank you, Dr. Salk. Prompted church services. Schools were let out. And headlines literally across the world, polio is conquered. And Jonas Salk became an international hero overnight. And then the government gave the instructions for certain pharmaceutical companies to create the vaccine according to Salk's instructions. Exactly. They there were six pharmaceutical companies. Before that, all of the trials were done with vaccine that Salk made in his own laboratory. But, you know, he couldn't make millions of doses. Actually, the March of Dimes, I think, selected actually the companies uh, that did it. And so Salk, he's a national hero now. He's, you know, given relief to every parent's worst nightmare. And tell us what happened with the pharmaceutical company known as Cutter. What was the Cutter incident? So the very afternoon, the very afternoon that the, uh, that the announcement was made of the success, the Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare licensed the vaccine. And thousands of pounds of polio vaccine were rushed across the country within hours of its approval. The March of Dimes had banked on it being successful and had stockpiled all this vaccine. So millions of kids were going to be vaccinated. And two weeks into this national, and the polio season's coming now. The polio, they're, it's upon us. So, you know, they are really moving fast. Two weeks into it, the Surgeon General received reports that seven children had become paralyzed following their inoculation. And most of it was the vaccine from, they traced to Cutter Laboratories in Berkeley, California. And he suspended all the vaccinations. And of course, you can imagine now, the parents are distraught, time is ticking. And yeah, the Surgeon General sent government regulators and they said they couldn't find any problem with Cutter's production. Um, so there must be something the matter with, uh, with Salk's vaccine. Well, Salk went out and did his own investigation, and he found that Cutter Labs had deviated from his procedures, and it had, as a result, left behind some live virus in some of the batches of vaccine. So did Salk ever doubt his vaccine when this happened? No, never. He never doubted it for a minute. That, that was, again, one of his defining characteristics. 
You know, he was not a doubter when he believed something himself. And so how did the public react when these children were starting to have polio? Yeah. How did they react in terms of their feelings about Salk? So first off, what was the damage done? 260 people got polio directly or indirectly from the contaminated vaccine and 11 died. Salk was devastated, absolutely devastated. Surgeon General in his kind of white paper uh, just kind of said there had been a problem with processing it or something. He never kind of came down to, never really made public what Salk found. Okay, so now here comes the finger pointing. The government, Cutter Labs, the March of Dimes, and Jonas Salk were among those who were blamed for the tragedy. And then they had stricter manufacturing guidelines and the vaccination program resumed and no one ever got it again. But to answer your question, there was really little loss of trust between Salk and the public, even though they didn't know all the details, because he looked and he acted the way their hero should. He was humble, he was dignified, he was dedicated, and he was honest with them. And his despair over this was apparent to them. I mean, he wore his heart on his sleeves, to use a phrase, trite phrase, but... He was genuine, and so they continued to trust him. It was genuine with him, yes. But it was the scientists who still opposed Salk, and they used this as just another instance to discredit him and his work, and that was very painful for him. So I just want to read something about the scientists from your book, quoting Jonas Salk's wife. I don't think those aspersions touched where he lived as a scientist, his first wife, Donna Lindsay, said years later. He had confidence in himself and in his work, but they touched where he lived as a human being because approval was certainly important to him. Absolutely. I just thought that was such a meaningful distinction. Absolutely. So the public never lost trust in him, but the scientists tried to question him. And just out of curiosity, was there an agenda at all at play there with the scientists at this point? Was there anything Saul could have done to gain their acceptance? I don't think so. When I was doing my research on Jonas Salk, I was shocked when I learned, one, he didn't live what happily ever after, and that after the vaccine was announced, his life changed forever. You know, he received all these incredible awards from the heads of state, the Presidential Citation, French Legion of Honor, Nehru Award, and almost no recognition from the scientific world. I mean, he was blackballed from the National Academy of Sciences, which is kind of the elite society that recognizes distinguished achievements in research. But he didn't even have, you know, more than a handful of letters of congratulation. His secretary saved every single letter he ever wrote or received. I was shocked. Not only that, when people asked, how could he not be in the National Academy of Sciences, let alone not get a Nobel Prize? Well, some of the members of the scientific community said, well, he didn't really make a true scientific discovery. He was, they just kind of likened him to a director of product development at a pharmaceutical company. The others attributed this, this kind of shunning to Albert Sabin, who berated Salk repeatedly. He called his work kitchen chemistry. He said, you know, Salk never had an original idea in his life. You could go into the kitchen and do what he did. And so he did contribute a little bit to his 
own rejection, I have to say, and that is because he reached out to the public in ways scientists had never done. He he gave interviews to Good Housekeeping and Parent Magazine, and he, he went on television and showed the viewing audience how to make a vaccine with a wearing blender. And he got a lot of criticism from the scientific community because at that time, you know, there was this academic line that you did not cross. But he told his long-term secretary that he felt beholden to the public because they had supported all the research with their dimes. And more importantly, they allowed their children to be put on clinical trials. But a lot of the scientists accused him of, of crossing this invisible line of academic, expected academic behavior. And others criticized him saying that, well, he didn't, he didn't really give credit to the scientists whose work helped him along which really wasn't true. He had really tried. They, they said he grabbed the limelight, but he really did try to share the credit. And he always did. He mentioned the other scientists, but the public didn't want to hear about other scientists. They wanted to hear about Jonas Salk because newsmen had used him to personify the polio story and turned him into this international kind of icon. So what kind of were the reasons underneath all of this? Well, some of it is that here he was, not a member of a kind of elite scientific group, kind of this still relatively young whippersnapper, who had defied, he, he had kind of gone beyond what they considered the basic tenet in virology, that you could only have a vaccine that would give lifelong immunity if you used a live weakened vaccine, and therefore you gave somebody a mild case of the disease, as had been the case, say, in smallpox, the very first uh, antiviral uh, vaccine. Jonas Salk's objection to that was he felt that could activate the disease in people by making a live virus. So then there was another reason, and we can come back to that in a minute. But I think some of it was this kind of palpable backlash. In fact, Basil O'Connor, who was the head of March of Dimes, says he showed the world how to eliminate paralytic polio and you'd think he'd had halitosis or committed a felony. I think when you really get down to it, there was this amount of jealousy in the world of science. I mean, with his vaccine success came this wave of celebrity that had been accorded few physician scientists in the history of medicine, save maybe Pasteur or Edward Jenner at that point. So you have to think that it wasn't just that he had disproved their, you know, their golden rule, so to speak, when it came to immunity, but he had been first at bat. Not that that was important to him. And then we come into the story of the oral vaccine. So he faced so many challenges throughout his research. You know, criticisms from his peers, a manufacturing malfunction, a rival vaccine, what quality did he have that you think made him just press on? I mean, you would think that if that had happened to somebody else, they maybe would just have thrown in the towel and waited for somebody else to come up with a vaccine. But what what was it in him that gave him such perseverance? It's funny. <laughs> Later in life, someone asked him how he handled his failures or what he considered his failures, and Salk replied, failure is not a term I use. My whole life's made up of challenges. And how do you know you can climb a mountain unless there's a mountain there for you to climb? 
but you would say, how did he handle his setbacks? And I think it was his tenacity. I mean, he had this firm belief that he was on this earth to help save mankind from disease. And he just would not give up. And in fact, if we talk about Sabin's vaccine, the oral vaccine, I think it can give you an example of this incredible perseverance. So five years after that national trial, Salk's polio vaccine, now the killed virus vaccine, had reduced the incidence of paralytic polio in the U.S. by 90%. Yay. But right. most of the senior virologists led by Sabin maintained that only a live virus vaccine could give lifelong protection and could lead to the eradication of polio, which, as you'll see, becomes kind of funny because it was the opposite. So Sabin prepared this vaccine. Several scientists, by the way, were working on one. He just happened to beat them to the finish line first. He prepared the vaccine, and it could be delivered in a sugar cube. And he tested it extensively in Russia because so many people had been vaccinated in the, in the U.S. And had good results. And in the early 1960s, the U.S. Public Health Service replaced Salk's vaccine with Sabin's oral vaccine. And they cited the less cost and the convenience. I'm sure there was a little politicking involved too. So Salk warned that this live virus, even though it was weakened, could revert to a more virulent form and cause polio. So he was very, very concerned, but he kind of stood alone in that concern. And his efforts to have Sabin's vaccine delicensed, he was overruled by all the major medical decision makers. And by 1968, the U.S. pharmaceutical companies stopped manufacturing the Salk vaccine. Well, as time went on, most of the cases of paralyzing polio in the U.S. could be traced to have originated from Sabin's vaccine. But the numbers were few, and his vaccine had become entrenched, and there weren't very many cases of polio, and everybody was moving on. And, of course, Sabin totally denied the charge. And so I was going to give you a tiny quote from the book about it, because I think it just shows his perseverance. He petitioned the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the Bureau of Biologics, the Center for Disease Control, the Surgeon General, the U.S. Public Health Service, and the World Health Organization, NADA. He submitted articles and letters to the editors of major medical journals. He spoke at scientific conferences. Nothing. He testified before two congressional committees. He appealed to the president. Nothing. He worked surreptitiously and then openly with victims and their lawyers and prompted the media to come to their aid because he was still, by the way, the media's darling. So he went on and on throughout his life, even though he was doing a lot of other things in his life, he never, ever gave up. That's amazing. Tenacious is a great word for him. I know. In 1999, the U.S. government recalled the Sabin vaccine. And they replaced it with a new version of the Salk vaccine. And unfortunately, by then, Jonas Salk was dead. So, yeah, that's why he was such an incredible person, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So how did he feel about the rejections, about not being accepted into the Academy of Sciences, about being passed over for the Nobel Prize? Was that kind of recognition important to him? Well, interestingly, he never addressed this to the general public, but to some of the people in the scientific world, he said, well, it's not the awards made by men that give us the greatest reason for doing. That was one of his famous quotes. He once told a superstar, Robert Gallo, who was a major player in, uh, in the AIDS saga, 
that it didn't matter that he didn't win the Nobel Prize because most people thought he did. But it really did become clear that he did want acceptance from his peers. That's all he wanted. He just wanted their acceptance, and he never got it. He once in, in private said, it's as if I've been public property ever since the vaccine was announced. It brought me enormous gratification, opened many opportunities, but at the same time, it placed many burdens on me. It altered my career, my relationship with colleagues. I'm a public figure, no longer one of them. I was being recognized. They were not. So it, it bothered him terribly. And the people that were very close to him knew that. So on that note, I just want to ask in terms of Salk's personal life, one quote from the book you wrote, his work, not his family, defined him. And what did this obsession, this genius, devotion, tenacity, all of it, I think ultimately it just became who he was. But what did this cost him? First off, he did have a lot of opportunities and whatnot. But I think what it cost him is initially it cost his family. I mean, they, his, his wife, his first wife, Donna, was unbelievably supportive. I mean, she thought he was going to do something great. And so she stayed in the background, took care of the kids. But it became very, very painful to her when he became famous because she was an accomplished social worker, but she was a very shy person. And she just could not bear all the publicity and being expected to go to all these events and whatnot. And eventually it ended that marriage. For the kids, he had three sons. It was very difficult because they were in the limelight a lot. And two of them were quite shy. In fact, one of them said, his oldest son, Peter, said, I can't imagine how difficult it was being his son. They would come in and take a picture of the three sons and him reading to us or flying a kite. He said, those things never happened. And he said, the expectation put on you. Peter loved baseball, but he was this kind of you know, scrawny little kid. But when he got up at bat, everyone expected him to hit a home run because he was Jonas Salk's son. And earlier on, when he was married to his first wife before the vaccine came out, I mean, it sounds like he wasn't able to see his family all that often. No, but he made that choice. I mean, he was never home. He was never home. He was obsessed with this. And, you know, I have to give her and the family credit of course, you know, it was a different time in our society. You know, it was acceptable for men to be a little less engaged with their family and more engaged in their work. But he, I don't think he ever regretted. He never, ever regretted the time he put in. In fact, later in life, he became a little depressed because he thought he hadn't done enough and he hadn't reached his expectations. Interesting. So you were a polio pioneer, one of the first children to get Salk's vaccine. What do you remember about that? <laughs> well, so when I was a child, the kind of carefree atmosphere of every summer was dampened by this threat of polio. And I remember I'd go to the movies and they'd have the newsreel, the days when they had newsreels, and they'd have these clips of children struggling with crutches and rooms full of iron lungs. And the ushers would pass around the March of Dimes collection box and you'd drop in your dime. 
hesitantly because I don't got a dime allowance once a week, but anyway. So in 1954, my hometown of Kingsport, which is in the Appalachian region of East Tennessee, was selected as a test site for polio. And my mom didn't really ever remember signing any kind of consent form. Uh, There was actually a small one. But my parents didn't have any qualms. They trusted the government and they really trusted Jonas Salk. And so on April 28th, I found a newspaper clipping. Uh, Miss Thompson, my second grade teacher, told us how lucky we were because we were, quote, polio pioneers. That's what we were called. And that we had been selected to get the first polio shots. And then she lined us up and marched us into the gymnasium at Andrew Johnson Elementary School. And I could kind of smell that alcohol when I entered, and my last name began with D, so I was near the front of the line. And I knew I had to be brave, because if I started crying, I knew everyone behind me would start crying. So I rolled up my sleeve and gritted my teeth, and the nurse stuck that needle in my arm. And then, as compensation, I got a polio pioneer button, a red lollipop, (laughs) and the hope that I would be spared. Wow. Were you afraid? No. I mean, you know, what did I know? I was seven years old. (laughs) I mean, I just knew I hated shots because anytime you were sick, the doctor gave you a shot of penicillin. That was kind of the only antibiotic around. And so. Were your parents scared? Were they worried at all? No, 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 no. I asked my mother. She said, no, no, of course. You know, we all knew Jonas Salk was a wonderful person and, you know, the No, my parents were intelligent. So let me ask you, what did you learn about Jonas Salk during the time you were researching and writing this book? What did you learn about him that you didn't know before? Was there anything surprising? Well, actually, everything was surprising. So, I mean, as I say, I knew him from the polio saga. I knew him from the newspapers where he was this hero. And as a biographer, because he was my second biography, I wasn't sure exactly where it was going to take me. He was very introvert. And so, you know, I wasn't sure how much there would be to make an engaging biography. The story was engaging, but him as an individual. As I went through, he had extensive archives at the University of San Diego. And I spent years there doing research because his secretary kept everything. And I interviewed people going back to his school days, elementary school, and the scientists that opposed him, and hundreds of people. Even Francois Gillot, his second wife, interviewed with me. And so it was an incredible journey. So I would say everything surprised me. I mean, I didn't know, you know, here's the Salk Institute, this wonderful scientific institute, world-renowned. I had no idea the trouble he went to establish that and how that he considered that, you know, his most painful legacy. So I didn't know that he had been ostracized by the scientific community. I didn't know about his family problems. It was a wonderful journey, that's all I can say. (laughs) So when you finished writing the book... Did you end up feeling like you liked him? I did. I did. I respected him. I mean, there were things in his personal life that uh, were not necessarily complimentary. There were debates among some of the historians about his humility. Was he a humble person or not? But I thought his life, it, it didn't really matter if I liked him or not. I really needed to portray him as accurately as possible. So... I thought that his life really served as an exemplar of how a visionary can succeed. You you know, you want people to take home kind of 
learned lessons. And I would say that one would say that dreamers need brilliance and or creativity and fortitude, self-confidence, and a clear underlying motivation, which he had because fame and fortune can certainly elude one. As a visionary, he needed to accept the possible price. He didn't realize it at first, but he did at the end. And so I kind of thought central to his character was this spiritual belief that he had been born with a mission. And despite the attacks by the scientific community, he never struck back. He never said an unkind word about people. He he kind of personified equanimity. But his core was a passion. And his passion was to solve medical problems and aid humanity. And so in the end, his idealism and his tenacity really has improved the health of mankind. So for that, I, uh, you know, it it was quite a journey. (laughs) Absolutely. So besides the polio vaccine itself, what do you think Salk would want his legacy to be? An important legacy was the Salk Institute, which wasn't just a standard scientific institute. He wanted to create this utopia where scientists and humanists work side by side. As he said, imbuing the sciences with the conscience of man. Nobody had that kind of idea. And he built this incredible architectural masterpiece that Louis Kahn designed in La Jolla, California, overlooking the ocean. And he got all these incredible scientists to leave their academic institutions and come there and work, giving them total academic freedom and lifelong funding. And and so that was an incredible legacy. However, at the end, it became a real problem because he tried to direct it himself and he kind of left the institute teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. And a new president of the institute said he could raise more money with Salk dead or alive. And in the end, he was deposed by those very scientists for whom he had kind of built this Shangri-La. And so it was sad at the end. He, he loved that Salk Institute. He loved the building. He loved the concept. But at the end, he said, I lost virtually every shred of freedom I had. And scientists were kind of ruthless <laughs> in terms of their attitude toward him. And not without some cause, but another legacy, the last legacy I'll mention, is AIDS. So he's 70 years old. He sees all these young men dying of this mysterious disease, and he enters the AIDS arena. People kind of dismissed his efforts as this old man attempting to regain his former glory. But Bob Gallo, who was a major leader scientist, said, well, he was pretty innovative. And he considered his entry into AIDS arena a noble gesture. Well, where everybody else was still trying to figure out the AIDS virus and how did it destroy the immune system and what exactly is HIV and whatnot, he saw all these young men dying. And he was out of the Salk Institute by then, so he formed his own company and designed this vaccine treatment to delay the time between infection with the virus and full-blown AIDS. And unfortunately, he died just as he was starting a trial of the vaccine. But what happened was the press still loved Jonas Salk, and they followed him everywhere at the AIDS meetings and and as he talked about AIDS and whatnot. And so I think his major contribution in the AIDS field and his legacy there was he brought international attention to a disease that the public at the time was trying to ignore. He was quite an incredible man. (laughs) If Jonas Salk has taught us anything, it's that one, there's nothing that can't be accomplished. And two, the life of a genius is never easy. 
Needless to say, he sure makes for a great, and in light of the coronavirus, timely discussion. Thank you, Charlotte DeCroze Jacobs, for being here and enlightening us about Jonas Salk's triumphs and hardships. By all means, check out her fantastic book, Jonas Salk, A Life. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, brought to you by Cross Border Solutions. The script was written and executive produced by Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom. The audio of this podcast was produced by Matthew DeMello with editing and musical contributions by Andrew O'Donnell. If you like what you heard, well then, listen to more. You don't have to be a genius to see why that makes sense. Subscribe to Genius Beats Fear on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to hear other inspiring stories and game-changing ideas. And if you have an innovative idea of your own, let this podcast serve as a reminder that while obstacles may be par for the course, a little confidence and a lot of commitment go a long way. Because after all, genius always beats fear. Fear.